Heavenly Father, we would bow humbly in your presence this morning, grateful, first of all, for your mercies that were new again this morning, this beautiful summer day. Grateful, Lord, for the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus and the wonderful reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ by which we stand before you just. And Father, this 4th of July, we also want to bow humbly before you and say thank you for the great privilege of being born in this great country. Father, you know our flaws, and we pray today and cry out to you today to mend those flaws, that we would be a humble people, a broken people before you, recognizing the horrendous permeating, all-encompassing, destructive nature of sin and what it is doing and what it has done to our families, to our children, and to our country. Father, may this morning our president wake up with a reality that you are God and there is no other and that Jesus Christ alone died on the cross for his sin. And our vice president, as he travels abroad this morning in Iraq, I pray that you would protect him. And I pray that he would recognize and humble his heart before you, his heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may we have a great awakening today and a great revival in our land that Christians would grasp the reality of the importance of walking in righteousness and that sinners and the unsaved would turn their hearts to you, their creator, and recognize that they stand before you accountable and they stand before you in need of a righteousness that they cannot create in their own strength. Father, now as we take our Bibles, we thank you for the great privilege of opening them and receiving uh, from you a word today to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be challenged, to be convicted. Change us, mold us, strengthen us in our walk, Lord. Through your word now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is, um, on occasion, a place that I like to visit. It is in the fall of the year, and some of you have heard me talk about it before. It's, it's in a little community in West Virginia called Horseshoe Run, and outside of Horseshoe Run is a stretch of hills that we call Hogback. And there, tucked at the base of a hill with an overgrown pasture and broken down fences, is a little house alongside the road. It's during deer season that I'm there and I walk through that house about every other year. That house is significant in that it's the home in which my father-in-law, my wife's dad, was born. It was a home that his father, my wife's granddad Parsons, had paid a nearby neighbor carpenter and a friend of the family to come and to build this little cottage home there. The winters are cold in Preston County and the snow is deep. I've seen pictures of that little bungalow house with the nice front porch. It used to be a nice front porch. It used to have flower pots hanging and, and uh, Janet's grandmother cared very much about beauty and flowers. And she kept things clean. And, 
And now it's broken in. The roof has leaked for many years. I always admired the craftsmanship of that little home as I, with rifle slung over my shoulder and all alone and no one around, just take a break from the field. And, and I walk around that house and I look at the joinery and the homemade sashes and window trim, hand-sawn. I see how if it hadn't leaked in a little more care, it would still be standing. The craftsmanship is worthy. But I always think to myself, what a shame. And when I walk in, I see the evidence that essentially it's only been raccoons that have been dwelling there. The floor has weak spots, and I am careful to walk where I walk carefully, and that I not step through rotten floorboards. It won't be long, much like the barn that was beloved and over on the other hill. It won't be long that we will look out there, and it will all be gone. And I think to myself, there was a day when a young family was excited about this project. There was a day when they counted the cost and they measured their bank account and projected what their income would be. And they went and enlisted John Judy and, and in a time simpler than now with an open carpenter's box with a broom handle and a strap and little more than a framing hammer, a handsaw, a framer square and a fold-up rule over his shoulder, he would walk there every day And it came together, this beautiful little cottage. But look at it now. There is a reality with which we live that everyone is aware of. But we don't think about it very often, and it's this. Every home that's ever built will fall down one day. Every barn, no matter how long those timbers are, sawn from one tree, 68-foot-long timbers. Every barn ever built, every home ever established, one day will come. They might not even know it's that day, and the storm door will slam for the last time, and no one will ever occupy it again, and gradually it will return to the earth. It's kind of sad, isn't it? It represents so much. It represents vision. It represents purpose. It represents energy and strength and investment. Memories. It represents a place where people love to be. And there it is, essentially gone. I don't want to be a doomsayer today, nor do I want to be negative, but I want to dwell only in the world of reality. But we need to recognize today that just like a house, just like a barn, so carefully planned and blueprinted out that history tells us that every country ever established, every civilization that has ever been launched comes to a point of time where it will collapse and it ruin, and it is in ruins and it is no more. The glory days departed. In some parts of the world, you can dig in the ground and you can dig deep enough and you can go through layers and layers of civilization. And you can see where fire may have destroyed one and another level you can see where 
flood came through and washed it away. And it represents hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And every once in a while, we get to go to a place where we can say, we're actually walking on the same pavers that the Apostle Paul walked. Think about it. But that road represents a time and a place that is no more. And there is no such thing as a civilization or a country that doesn't come to a point in time where it eventually collapses It implodes or it explodes and it is no more. Some of you may, like me, be wondering today, where are we on the timeline and the chronology of the downgrade, the decline of America? History shows us there will be a day when the United States of America will not be what it once was, and in fact, if the Lord would tarry, it's very possible that it will only be in the history books and the museums. A culture that once was, a civilization that once for a few years ruled the world. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to our Old Testament, to 2 Kings in chapter 17. 2 Kings in chapter 17. I hope you enjoy history because... We're going to look at history this morning. It is very important for us to look at history, to understand history, lest what? Lest history repeat itself. How foolish to not learn from history. However, Winston Churchill once said that the one and only thing we have learned from history is that we didn't learn from history. In 2 Kings chapter 17, and in a minute we will read for our text, beginning with verse 7, and we will read through verse 20, you need to understand that we are interrupting the flow of a, of a, a, a chronicle, a history book. And let me just tell you very quickly on a, a very, very elementary and rough timeline where we are. Let me identify some of the characters in our story that you will very quickly, I think, Respond to. Do you remember when Israel cried out for a king? And Israel said, We want a king. Do you remember why they wanted a king? Everybody else had a king. And the Lord said, You don't want a king. A king will marry your daughters, send your sons off to war, and tax your money. Just be happy with me. I am your God. And God spoke to his people through his prophets. And like Elijah and Elisha, earlier on by men like Moses. But Israel insisted. Joshua was long gone and now they wanted a king. And so they cried out and they looked around for a king. And you remember the fellow who was a head and shoulders, go back to your Sunday school years, a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. His name was Saul. This is not the Apostle Paul Saul in the New Testament. This is many years before in Israel of old. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. Moses is dead. Joshua has led them into the promised land. They possess the land. They're not happy with God being their ruler. They want a king. They enlist Saul. You remember that Saul started out pretty good. Saul was a pretty good fellow for a while. He had the best of intention. And then, like so many who are in leadership... The power got the best of them. They became very insecure. They began to watch out for their own interests. He began to think that he was something that he was not, and he began to forget God. 
God said, that's enough of your disobedience. It was particularly over his disobedience of not wiping out the Amalekites, you'll recall. That's the old King James phrase that we know so well, where Samuel the prophet came to Saul and said, why didn't you obey God? And Saul said, I did. And Samuel said, remember, what meaneth thou the bleeding of sheep in mine ears? He hadn't destroyed them. For personal gain and because of peer pressure, he had capitulated to the desires of his soldiers and he had disobeyed God. God said, that's enough. You're on the shelf. He raised up a little boy, only a boy named David. Only a Remember that one? And David, we talked about him in our introduction just a couple weeks ago. He came to the fore when he went to King Saul and he said, don't worry, King Saul, your servant is here. I'll go kill Goliath. And he's this little sniveling, probably 15, 17-year-old kid. And remember, Saul tried to put his armor on him, but that didn't work. David goes down and kills Goliath, and that began a journey then to the throne for the shepherd boy David. David, who wrote our book of songs and psalms. David, who loved God with all his heart. David, with all of his flaws. Those would be the glory years in Israel. King Saul for a few years. David for a few years. And then you'll remember that at the end of David's life, there was some... Some battling for who, which son would take over. And David, you might not realize, had many wives and had many sons by many wives. And they killed each other for a few weeks. And finally, Solomon established, by God's ordinance, to become the king. And you know Solomon, he wrote Proverbs, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He had a prayer at the beginning of his reign, and it was a good prayer. God said, Solomon, what can I do for you? You're the king of my people. What do you want? And Solomon said, it's too great for me. I need your blessing. I need your wisdom. God said, because you didn't ask for personal wealth, for personal gain, and you have a humble heart, I will lift you up. And he made Solomon wiser than any man that ever lived. But you remember what happened to Solomon. He started out great too, but... His many wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And that began then a history of time leading into the Chronicles where we have recorded in the book of the Kings. You with me? King Saul. Prophets aren't good enough. Samuel's not a good enough man of God to lead us. Saul to David. From David to his son Solomon. And that's all the longer it lasted Just a few decades, really. And then began division in the land, civil war, and they were divided, kind of like the United States, north and south. The north we call Israel, the south we call Judah. The north had the most people, but you have to know this. The north had 20 kings in a row over the course of about about the next 200 years, from about 900-something B.C. to 722 B.C., About 200 years, 20 kings, every single one of them wicked, seven of them assassinated. We are at the end of those 20 kings, Saul to David to Solomon 
to civil war, nation divided, 20 kings over the course of 200 years, seven assassinations, total chaos in the country, and God's right here saying, that's it, I've had enough. That's it. Interestingly enough, as we read our text this morning, uh, you will see that God uses the phrase in there that he's angry with them. I want us to read now this historical chronological or uh, chronicled account of uh, this story of the demise of Israel, the north. For just a little bit longer, Judah in the south is going to hold on. But at this point in our text where we're jumping into it, 20 kings have been recorded, chaos and sinfulness has taken over the land, and God said, that's enough, and now he's dispersing them by outside forces coming in. They destroy the land, and they're scattered. Let's jump in, because of time, we'll not continue to talk about how the history unfolds, but that's where we are. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. He has just described the siege and then the captivity of Israel, and that's what he means by all this. Verse 7 of chapter 17, 2 Kings. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, and they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, and as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done, and they did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols. Though the Lord had said, You shall not do this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and the seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts, And they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. And they practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until 
and perhaps some of the saddest words in the Bible, he had thrust them from his presence. What an incredible account. What a, what a horrible account. What a tragedy. Something that had so much vision. Something that, ha- that was so right. Something that had meant so much for so long. Crumbled. Rotten to the core. Finally, bulldozed and scattered. Evidence no more. I'd like this morning to basically just uh, make two points. The first point I would like us to discuss from our passage is the process of decline. The process of decline. And then I would like us to look at a picture of decay. The process of decline and then a picture of decay. And then we will bring it back around at the end to the prayer of God's people. The process of decline. I want you to notice that in verse 7 where we began our account of the demise of Israel, it says all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God. They are now a people that when characterized categorically are basically in the category of they're just a bunch of sinners. He goes on to say, they sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I want you to think with me for just a minute. We're going to depart from our text. I was reading an article by Kirby Anderson, who does work in the area of Christian apologetics, from a ministry called Probe Ministries. And Kirby wrote an article called The Decline of America. And in his article, he listed something that is not original with him, but he listed uh, 10 points or stages that historians have identified in the decline of a nation. It was interesting to me and it caught my eye because the first two are stated implicitly in the passage at the beginning of the nation of Israel's glory days when they came out of Egypt and they began, first of all, number one, in bondage. Let me list these ten points with you and you'll maybe remember some of the historical points that went on in Israel of old that you can track with it. And this morning, our goal is to apply this list to our own country and to ask ourselves, well, where are we in the 10-step stairwell to decline? The first step is this. The, The historians identified 10 stages from the birth to the glory to the decline to the death then of a nation. The first one is bondage. Did you see that in our passage? All this took place because Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh. Remember that for 400 years plus, they had been in Egypt abused. They were in bondage. This was the beginning of their national identity. Here we are, Lord. Will you rescue us? Remember the story. You know them well. That's the time of the 10 plagues. So even if you don't know your Bible or hardly come to church, surely you remember the 10 plagues of Egypt. You know, the water turning to blood and all the frogs everywhere and the king's bed and the king's bread and everything. Awful. Ultimately, the blood of the Passover lamb and 
The slaughter of the firstborn and God delivered them. Step number one in the birth of a nation is bondage. Historians identify a group of people who are in bondage, which leads to step number two in their development. And you see it here. Then they came out of Egypt from under the power of the king of Egypt. It stops there, but we know what happened next. Under Moses' leadership and Joshua's leadership, they entered the land and they began to experience the blessing of the Lord. They went from bondage then to a spiritual faith. They were united spiritually. And they followed, remember, the the fire by night and the cloud pillar by day, and God led them across the wilderness. Their backs are against the the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is coming to crush them. And what do they do? With one voice and one mind, they cry out to God. God parts the sea and delivers them. They went from bondage to spiritual faith, Spiritual faith led to great courage. And don't we have many examples of that in Israel of old? Great courage, step number three in the development of a civilization and the growth of a people. They had to accomplish great feats. Jericho comes to mind. With, With their great spiritual faith, they mustered great courage. They worked together, the divine and the human And that led to stage number four, the period of liberty. Liberty. Stage number four is liberty. And they took over the land, didn't they? And there was peace in the land. But what does liberty lead to? In the development of a civilization, a free people begin to enjoy stage number five, abundance. Liberty leads to abundance. Abundance was no more greater exemplified except for under the kingdom of King Solomon. Do you remember? People around the world would sail in their ships. Queen of Sheba comes to mind because the renown of Solomon in Israel and their abundance and in their liberty, they basically ruled the world and he built huge storehouses for grain and for horses, barns for horses, but he had so much that he built huge storehouses just to pile his gold up just to pile up silver, just to pile up his precious stones. And people came in to see the wonders of Solomon. And that abundance led to what? It led to selfishness. It led to selfishness. It led to arrogance and selfishness. Forgetting who God was, forgetting where the gifts came, thinking he's something that he's not. He implodes in his sexual immorality and in his lifestyle of ease. Selfishness comes in and leads to stage number seven, complacency. Complacency in the leadership, complacency among the people. Complacency then led to apathy. I can't do anything about it. Who cares? The people as a whole were apathetic. And the apathy, that which used to be so on fire, that united spiritual front, that great courage to conquer and to live well, to be strong. Went from selfishness to complacency to apathy to number nine, historians identify in the breakdown of civilization, stage number nine, moral decay. And the people are just corrupt to the core and they are, they are immoral. And that which is wicked in the eyes of God and that which is perverse and that which is immoral becomes commonplace. They even make TV shows about it. They even begin to make movies and make millions of dollars of getting to people to come sit in a room and watch a screen while people are immoral. 
and it's celebrated. And they, have, they, they rent out vast auditoriums and they love themselves as they get out of their limousines and walk down the red aisle. And they love to get up there and kiss their trophies that they give to each other for doing the best job of being immoral. And then you're back to stage 10. Dependence. Dependence, which leads to bondage, stage one. Did you get that? Boy, you can sure see it in Israel of old. Bondage, cry out to God, spiritual faith. Spiritual faith leads to great courage. Great courage leads to liberty. Liberty leads to abundance. Without discipline and godliness, it leads to selfishness, complacency, apathy, moral decay, until moral decay makes you a dependent people. You're led around with a ring in your nose and you need somebody to tell you what to do with everything you have. And you need somebody to tell you where you can live and you need somebody to tell you what is yours and what is not yours. And freedom that was once so courageously established is gone. That's the process of decline identified by historians. Let's look in our Bible text a little bit further and let's look at... Let's identify six things that are happening in our picture of decay, as though we are an artist drawing a demise of a country and of a nation here. We're going to draw a picture, and in our picture, our big artwork, our artwork entitled The The Picture of Decay of a Nation. Notice these six things that are going on in this story here. Remember, they had a season of plenty, spiritual faith and courage. Some solidity, which led to abundance, which leads to, leads to 200 years of, of just rot, spiraling down, till God says, get out of my sight. The picture of decay begins, first of all, with, number one, an idolatrous people. Notice in our text, back to the text. All this took place, verse 7, because of Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God and had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh. That began the upswing. It has gone all the way back down. And then he goes right to, they worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The first thing I want you to notice that though they were characterized in the text by being a sinful people, the number one sin that he goes to that he points out in the passage is the sin of idolatry. There's no other sin that is worse than the sin of idolatry. I mean, sin is sin is bad. There's God. This is the word picture I've shared with you before. Come into my office and front and center on my desk, I've got a picture of... Uh, some girl, I won't tell you her name. You say, who's that? That's my old girlfriend. Dated her for a year while we were in college. Why aren't you married to Janet? Yeah, but I just, I love this girl, man. I just, I don't want to give up this picture. There is no rage like the rage of a jealous wife, right? There is no rage like the rage of a jealous God. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is saying, instead of loving you, I'm going to put other things in first place. And that is the great sin that God goes at in the text, showing them that this is why you deserve to be cast from my presence. Everything that I've given, everything that I've provided is here. And you turn away and you substitute it. Not only that, it's kind of an ultimate smack 
Notice that it says they were an idolatrous people. They worshipped other gods. But notice verse 8. They followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. So God had clearly removed the false religion, the idolatrous people, the sinful wickedness from the country. He had given them a country. And the very place that he had established them, the very thing that he had given them, they had said, let's bring back what God has removed. Let's take the things that are from the old, the things that are outside of God, and let's bring them back and implement them here in our system. We love the world. We love the world. We love the world. The world is gone. Let's bring it back. God is not sufficient. He's not adequate. He doesn't fill my love tank. I want to get the old ways and bring them back. And God says, you are so wicked. In that idolatry, as a sinful people, we'll see in a moment, is tremendous wickedness. But notice at the end of verse 8, the second thing we see in, the picture of our, in, in our picture of decay is a people who are idolatrous, number one. But secondly, then, we see godless leadership. Notice the influence of the leaders that they've had. In the middle of verse 8, it says, they, or verse 8 says, they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well, look at this sentence, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The second thing we see in our passage, in our picture of decay, is not only are the hearts of the people away from God, but they have leadership that has introduced to them, that which is outside of God's plan and God's will. It is a leadership that is helping the people be in decline. In this case, they introduced, probably because of the popularity of the move, they introduced worship stations in all over in the community that were uh, pagan. They set up Asherah poles. Now look what it says. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. I'm not 100% sure what that means. I take it to mean the kind of thing that you didn't talk about, but everybody knew was going on. Obviously, God knew what was going on. But they said one thing, but they were doing another thing, and everybody knew they were doing it. They secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places, look, in all their towns. And they set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. The point is that when you walk through the land of Israel, everywhere you went, you saw these poles that had been erected to the goddess Asherah. She's the fertility goddess of the Canaanites. She is a wicked thing. She is a horrible imagination. The worship of Asherah has everything to do with base, perverted sexuality. It's why they had, ultimately, it would have temple prostitutes. But it kept getting worse. But everywhere you went, they had these Asherah poles. And then they also piled up rocks. Later in the passage, we're going to see that they had these altars to Baal. Asherah is the, for, the female fertility goddess, and Baal is the male form of it. Both are wicked and perverse. 
The worship of Baal leads to child sacrifice. We'll see in a minute. It is so awful and horrendous. I take it that some of this was state-led and that the leadership introduced the concept of spreading out the worship centers everywhere so that everywhere everybody looked, that's what you saw, a people characterized by idolatry. They were an idolatrous people. They had godless leadership. This leads, look at verses 9 through 11, to number three in our picture of decay, the third thing in our picture of decay, which is just general wicked behavior. Number three, wicked behavior. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did these things. Verse 10, they set up sacred stones in the Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. And at every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. So just like the wicked people that God had destroyed and their forefathers had put to the edge of the sword, they now were doing the things that had gotten those people killed. The things that had filled up the patience of God finally. And he had said enough and he had brought his righteous, wrathful judgment. Because remember, the spiritual law of God is, undeniable spiritual law number one of God is, the wages of sin is death. God's patience had run out. Now his own people are just like them. They did, look what it says, they did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. The writer doesn't even amplify what these wicked things are. We can only imagine, and we don't want to imagine too much. But they now have this cultism, this worship of Baal and Asherah and the gods of Molech and the Canaanite gods, and there are many represented. It is all very sexual in nature. It is all very perverse. And it all leads to the breakdown of the culture. It leads to the breakdown of the family. It leads to the abuse of their wives. It leads to the abuse of their marriages. It leads to the abuse of their children. And now the country is in utter chaos because the family has been splattered against the wall and nobody cares and everybody's laughing while they eat pizza and watch The Simpsons and say, isn't it great? Isn't it great? And you cannot overstate the wickedness of the people and it's on every turn. There it is. It's in the news. It's in their newspaper. It's in their schools. It's in the neighborhoods. And there it is. Just wicked behavior to the degree that they held, I'm sure, great big parades in their major cities and they celebrated their perversity. And all of the politicians came running out to lead the parade because they would be afraid not to get voted back into office by all of the perverse people. And everybody in the country says, that's normal. Yeah, that's normal. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not uncomfortable with that. No, I'm not uncomfortable with that. And it's wicked. And there it is. Indescribable wickedness that has destroyed the family, that has destroyed their communities, that has destroyed their culture. And they're thinking, this is great, this is great. God said, you have provoked my anger. Verse 12, they worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. I want you to see now that number four thing that we're painting into our picture of decay, we've painted in our idolatrous people, we've painted in our godless leadership, we've painted in these wicked behavior spots. And number four, we're painting in now the whole concept of the rejection of God. 
the wholehearted rejection of God. Look what it says. The Lord warned Israel and Judah, verse 13, through all of this, excuse me, through all of his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and my prophets. But... They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. And they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. And they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. The fourth thing we're painting into our picture now is this concept of the rejection of God. You notice what he says. He said to him, Hey, I can't make it any clearer. I have sent my prophets. They have proclaimed. There's a pot tilted from the north full of boiling water. It's going to spill on you. Get right with God. Turn to obedience. Remember my law. I chiseled it in stone for you. Moses broke the first one. I gave you another one. There it is. The first thing I said is, have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I sent that weird guy Jeremiah to you. He shaves half his head and lays down in the middle of the street. And right in the middle of your city, you stepped over him for 40 days. And he was proclaiming to you, you better get right because God sent in his judgment. And you said, I hate preaching. And you said, God who? And you said, it's not real. And you said, let's put teachers in place to teach our children that there is no God and they're not accountable to anybody. And that the word is a bunch of junk. It's just myths. And let's actually get it to the point where there is almost nothing more moronic that you can say or believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Dad, Mom, you don't believe that. It's much more logical to believe that everything came from nothing. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I don't even have to repeat for you the whole decline that we've all watched for about 35, 40 years now. But the prophets were sent... The men of God were sent. The word of God was written. It was right there. It was loudly proclaimed. It was in front of everybody. They hated it. They had no time for it. They didn't want it. Fifth thing we're going to paint into our picture as we wrap up our picture here. Verses 15b and 16. Look what it says. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They just reject that stuff. You don't really believe that, do you? They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Look what it says. And they imitated the nations around them. I was thinking about that phrase. And I am still kind of naive. I'm, um, I live in the culture, so I think I understand it somewhat. I uh, don't know that I'm a student of the culture, but I, you know, I read the news, listen to the news, watch and see what's going on. I know that I didn't know the difference between a, a Twitter and a tweet the other day. I was straightened out on that. But, um, and I think that um, it's taken me a long time to become this 
culturally illiterate, and I really don't want that tampered with. <laughs> but have you noticed that in America, in about the last 20 years, it has become really popular to emulate in your dress and in your tattoos and in your behavior and in the kind of words that you use and in the kind of uh, religion that you turn to, to emulate religion that when I was a little boy back in the early 60s would have been considered pagan religions. That the markings and the kind of religion that Americans who once followed after God and Jesus Christ, and I don't have time to read the quotes of our forefathers, who were committed by and large to a biblical Christianity and to the understanding that Jesus Christ alone was king. But we have adopted the behavior of the pagan nations around us. I don't want to offend anybody that might be in our audience today, and you might not even realize it, but I even see people stretching their earlobes out to huge distances that at one point was considered a pagan practice outside of our country. And you can just say, it's just your earlobe, I know that. And that's why, you know, and it's not in the Bible probably. But there is this underlying current of an inroad of pagan thought and behavior and symbolism and imagery. Some of it's wrapped up in a few years ago, it was common to say the New Age movement. This new spirituality. You'll notice in our passage, back to the book here quickly as we wrap up now, this part of it, that they even worshipped the stars. Did you see that when we read it earlier? Verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and they made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts. And they took on the practices of wicked astrology and, and demonic sorcery, divination and sorcery. And it says that they sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it provoked them to do evil. Number five was just pagan behavior that crept in. They just emulated pagan behavior. I'll check my sign in the newspaper before I get going today. I got to see what the stars say about my future. That is pure paganism. That is not how Christian people think. That is from the pit of hell. Our sixth and our final observation here as we paint the picture of decay in Israel of old before they were scattered them and, and puked out from the presence of God in utter chaos was finally, number six, a complete loss of conscience. They finally, verse 17, get to a place where they have no more conscience and they even get to a place where it was acceptable even vogue that in your worship you would take your new baby and you would place it on the sizzling brass white-hot hands of the Baal of the uh, Molech gods. I don't know what goes through people's mind to give up your children like that. I just know that it doesn't happen overnight and that as a nation is in decline and is in moral decadence and takes on pagan trappings and begins to think pagan, something from the pit of hell, through the influence of the demons, through the base sinful nature of the flesh, can bring people to where they will murder their children for their own personal agenda. 
Oh, but in America, we would never do that. Will you turn with me quickly, because our time has gone to Titus chapter 2, and let's just shoot straight to the end, okay? In our picture of decay, we have painted six qualities, six colors. First, an idolatrous people they were, a godless leadership they had, wicked behavior they demonstrated, the rejection of God was commonplace, they took on the trappings of pagan behavior to the point that they completely lost their moral conscience and their moral compass. There they are. I would like to propose to you this morning that if America doesn't wake up, we are so close to experiencing the wrath of God in a way that we have never seen before. That is, the expulsion from His presence in the very demise of the structure of our homeland and our nation. You cannot emulate His covenant people. Now, these are His covenant people, Israel. They're different than Americans. But they had the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises pass through them in covenant that if you do this, I will do this. And in a broader application, our founding fathers struggled through the summer of 1776 in the heat of Philadelphia from June to September, struggling to come up with the Constitution and all that. Maybe it wasn't 1776. I'm off on my number. But anyway, as they had the, the gathering there to clear, clearly spell out things, And in one day, Ben Franklin, who wasn't maybe even a Christian, said, we had better stop and beseech the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in prayer, or we're never going to make it. And we are a Christian nation, no matter who says we're not a Christian nation. We have been a Christian nation. We have chiseled God's word into our money and into our buildings. And you have to believe that the evidence of blessing is too obvious from the hand of God, the things that have happened through the years. but it is in decline because there is the rejection of God and it won't be long until they'll have the big telescopic booms up and they will be sandblasting out the scripture from our Supreme Court and other buildings. Wait and see. See, we love wickedness in America, don't we? And we're very selfish and we're very affluent and we've become very apathetic. So what is the Christian response What does it take for God to bless America? I would suggest that probably, and you can build and argue and build a case for the fact that we are already under the judgment of God in the sense of a Samson who remember when he finally gave away the secret of his strength to Delilah and he really did give her the real information and and like so many times before when he had lied to her, he was going to burst up and with his great strength whip up on the Philistines, but it said that he woke up with a start and he... And he did not know that God had departed. America's in a stage where basically we don't even realize God has departed. He's not even here in the sense of his corporate blessing on a people and on a nation. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says this. Let's bring it home personally. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Listen. The great hope and the only hope for America and people everywhere is the great grace of God that has appeared to all people through the message of salvation in Christ Jesus. I am now going to say something that has become incredibly politically incorrect. We can still say it here in Shenandoah Junction and not have any problem. 
it's getting more and more difficult to say it on the public four, and that is that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing to look forward to but condemnation. That's it. There is no other alternative. All right? And every year that goes by, that statement becomes more and more foreign to our children because they are taught not to think like that. How can you say it is an exclusive gospel? How can you say in our postmodern America that, there, that truth is exclusive? If I don't want two plus two to equal four, it doesn't equal four. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly worldly pleasures. Listen to me closely. If there is any hope in America, it is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way America will hear the hope of the gospel is through the people of God and the only way the people of God will share the love of Christ is if they walk in godliness and say no to ungodliness. We cannot look and act and entertain ourselves like the world and expect God to use us to reach the world. It's not going to happen. There it is. It teaches us this gospel that we have to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is the hope of America. Your children are the hope of America. Our families, the Christian home, is the hope of America. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. America is great and I love America and I could talk a lot about it and what it means to me. But America doesn't really matter. What really matters is the Lord Jesus Christ in our heavenly home. And we see a city that is not here. We're pilgrims on a journey. All right? We got to keep our priorities straight and our passions correct. Look what it says. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own. Can I tell you that if you are comfortable with the world and the world is comfortable with you, you are not living for Jesus. If you look like everybody else around you, if you act like everybody who doesn't know Jesus, you are not living for Jesus. You have to be a bit weird to the rest of the world. We're not weird on purpose. We just love Jesus and we obey the word. And so we're weird because we do not fit into the mold of this world. And so our goal is to walk in obedience before the Lord and for husbands to love our wives and to train up our children to walk in godliness and for daddies and mommies and boys and girls to be in Sunday school on Sunday morning and in church on Sunday with our Bibles open, receiving the word of God receiving correction and exhortation and encouragement that we can go out into the the cesspool and be the salt that God has called us to be. I don't know what the future holds for America. I am fearful. I worry about what my son is going to face. I fully expect... Our church, in the years ahead, and if I'm still here in the next, I would say within the next decade, unless there is a dramatic change, that the hate speech issue is what will be used to try to shut down our pulpits and that, that you may get the email if it's allowed to be on that week 
that your pastor is in jail and that Tim Hellman's working hard to get him out. But because he was preaching the Bible, it was shut down. I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I'm not a conspiracist and I'm not a fear monger. All I know is we need to wake up in the morning full of the joy of the Lord, grateful for his righteousness that we have, go to work and work hard, let the Lord lead us and show us what to do. But if the church isn't righteous, there is no hope for America whatsoever. Let's bow in prayer. Um, Father, as we bow our heads on this birthday of our country, our prayer is, would you please bless us? But we would also recognize that we very much emulate nations that you clearly said you despised and are angry and remove them from your presence. And so, Lord, would you be gracious and kind to us a bit longer? Would you embolden your church? Would you help us to hate sin like we ought to hate sin? And to love Jesus like we ought to love Jesus. And to not be ashamed of your gospel. And to be the purifying agent that our society so much needs. Father, bring back the shock and sensitivity to sin that we've lost. Bring back the awe and the fear of you that we have lost. Bring back the boldness like the martyrs of old who sang the hymns while the hyenas tore at their flesh. Father, may we live upright and godly lives in this present age. In Jesus' name I pray.